You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 6th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View, coming up today. He's obviously come to office, and we've seen this developing over the last couple of years, but this is a real clear example of it. He's come in thinking that all the skills that he had in business are directly transferable to his dealing with other countries. US President Donald Trump's impeachment grinds on, but what does a senior diplomat's refreshed memory mean for Ukraine? My guests today, James Rogers and Adam Labor, will discuss this and more, such as... A doctored video that may send a warning from a humorless, deepfake future. And a Pulitzer Prize-winning newspaper that's found a new lease of life as a not-for-profit. Plus... The evidence is mounting that people do not need to be in the office nine hours a day, five days a week to get their job done. Are long weekends better for productivity? I'm Tom Edwards. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. Here with me in Studio One are James Rogers, leader in international journalism studies at City University London, and the journalist and author and friend of Monocle, Adam Labor. Let's start with the latest events, or perhaps that should be non-events, in the Trump impeachment saga. In recent days, a US diplomat, thanks to his refreshed memory, has filled in some blanks in his own testimony regarding Trump's threat to withhold state aid for Ukraine unless that country pursued investigations into his political opponents. James, I'll start with you. Can you tell us, where do recent developments get us? How much, if anything, has this moved things on? What what do you make of the latest? Firstly, I'd like to uh, celebrate the addition of memory being refreshed to the sort of political euphemism vocabulary, which I it's think a good is, one. It's a, a one I'm sure has not uh, had its last outing. Um, I think the way that this is unfolding really gives us an insight into the way that Donald Trump um, has approached international relations. He's obviously come to office, and we've seen this developing over the last couple of years, but this is a real clear example of it. He's come in thinking that all the skills that he had in business are directly transferable to his dealing with other countries, with diplomacy, um, and it's proved to have um, sort of limited effectiveness. But I think for for those, it's a very interesting insight into his rise to the top in business, um, that this is the way, and this is all quid pro quo. And it's been very interesting too, within the American political elite, to see that when he comes up against career diplomats or when his representatives come up against them, there's a real culture clash because they're sort of, let's get this done, let's say, we'll do this for you, we'll do that. And of course, there's an element of that in diplomacy, but it's also the rule of law. Um, and Adam, what about the Ukraine's role in this? They, they often seem to be the kind of silent partner in the discussion. I mean, what, what's the narrative both within and, and without Ukraine? Or, or, or do we need to kind of almost necessarily look at this as, you know, as James alluded to there, it's a Capitol Hill story. It's a White House story. Well, it's a, it's a White House story, but it's also very much a, it's a Kiev story as well. Uh, In fact, I think for Ukraine, all of this is a bit of a disaster because Ukraine is in a very difficult position anyway and has been essentially ever since it declared independence in the early 1990s. It's got Russia on its back. Part of its territory is occupied by the Russians. It's got this ongoing kind of frozen conflict. It's trying desperately to get into at least Western Western international structures. Obviously, it's unlikely that it's ever going to be in the EU, but it wants to have a closer trading relationship with the Mm. EU. Every now and again, there's sporadic talk about you... uh, joining NATO or security cooperations with NATO. And Ukraine's really caught between the rock and a hard place 
partly through geography, partly through its own unfortunate history since it became independent, a lot of legacy of corruption, rule by oligarchs, all the classic kind of post-Soviet things we've seen. And then they get a, a new president, Zelensky, who says he's going to try and fix that at least, he's going to shake the things up. They had this revolution in Maidan Square in which people died for freedom, uh, essentially. And then he's on the track for this, uh, got a lot of goodwill in the West, and he finds himself caught in this American domestic, very nasty political domestic dispute, essentially, between the Republicans and the Democrats, because however much it might be an issue of statecraft, it's now been weaponized into an election issue. So that's the ultimate nightmare for a small country dependent on help from others for on all sorts of levels, now finds itself used as a political football. So in, in Kiev, this is looked at aghast. Well, and what I mean, do people there, I guess they're right to then look to apportion blame. You know, can they blame their leadership? It's easy to, I suppose, blame Donald Trump. Is that a narrative in Kiev and more broadly throughout the Ukraine? I don't think people are really blaming their leadership. I think they're seeing that what could he do? I mean, mm. he's a new president. He's not an experienced politician or diplomat. He was a he was a comedian. So and now he's found himself in the most important office of state in the country, um, dealing with a, an American president um, who, as James said, is absolutely transactional in all his dealings, brings the business mentality. I'll do this for you. You do this for me. OK, there's an element of that anyway in diplomacy, but it's pure, tr purely transactional. So how is that going to work for Ukraine? They think, oh, my God, what are we going to do? If we help him, then we're helping kind of on one side in the election. And apart from anything else, what happens if they lose? A new democratic administration is not going to be our friend. If we don't help him, it's clear we're not going to get this money that we desperately need because there really is a war in Ukraine. So it's a nightmare for them. Um, I guess also, James, another aspect here that I find interesting is on the sort of metabolism of a, of a scandal or of an impeachment. Um, these things are often slow burn, gradual leaking of uh, you know revelations or the, the press gets involved. Do, do you think that we're learning about how, I don't know, the press or Trump's critics can or should handle the story, try and manage it for maximum impact? Is it instructive to look back at, you know, slow burn scandals of, of presidents past, you know, back to the Watergate? It took years for all of these yeah. things to emerge. Do we, do we learn I anything as time passes? To a limited extent, because the circumstances are so very different in some ways. I mean, and I think, you know, when, when one thinks back to, to that, the, the, the most famous example, um, the circumstances were very different. And I think that um, there's only so much that can be learned. I mean, I think part of the problem, too, if one thinks about the way that public opinion in the United States reflect this, um, that Trump's constituency, such as it is, has shown no t signs of wavering since he became elected. Uh, and so even if um, the Democrats and their allies in the media do manage to make some of this stick, and even if the legal process goes ahead, it's very hard to see how that's going to um, affect public opinion, because a lot of people, one assumes that Trump supporters will just say, well, look, he was just trying to look after American interests. And, you know, why shouldn't he have a go at his rival like that if, it, if this is indeed, uh, as has been alleged, that it was an attempt to um, uh, find out compromising material on the family of Joe Biden? And so I think it, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out, because I think it's a very very, very, very different political culture than uh, than it was at the time of the Watergate scandal. I, I agree with uh, with that completely because many Trump voters they're not going to care about this. They're going to think, oh, tell me really that Barack Obama wasn't making the same kind of phone calls, or that Hillary Clinton wouldn't have, or that Ronald Reagan didn't, or that Jimmy Carter didn't. They think 
that that's this is what happens. This is how superpower diplomacy works. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But this, this I think, will have zero traction among Trump's base. Will think so. What exactly, as James says, he's looking out for American interests. Why the hell are we giving four hundred million dollars to Ukraine? And where is that anyway? And what, what's that got to do with us? So we want something back from it. And so I, I don't think that this will have uh, any effect. Uh, and what about the, just the, on the sort of journalistic? the journalistic story, the news cycle story, you go back to the days of Watergate, that, you know, if there's something appeared on the front page of the Washington Post, you know, people took notice. These big players had, if not a monopoly, c- close to it in terms of information provision. Do, do you think, Adam, that with your journalistic hat on, the 24-hour rolling news, Fox News, fake news, all the rest of it, ha- has that changed the American audience's attention span or their ability to engage with a story like this that doesn't necessarily have you know, an outcome from day to day. It's a slow burn. I think what it's given them is a lot more options because uh, things like Fox News, Breitbart, uh, the what we could call the conservative slash right-wing news media simply didn't mm. exist at the time of Watergate. There was the Washington Post, the paper of record. There was the New York Times, the other paper of record. Now you can go and find whatever you want. So in one way that's good because there's much more of a plurality and on the other side of course there's Vox and Vice and the Daily Beast which are much more uh, left wing in in many ways than the New York Times or the Washington Post so you can find whatever you want but the problem is when you look at this spread of media a lot of them bring their own perspective to the way that they report it so you're seeing a lot of separate silos and echo chambers Uh, So and rather than this sort of uh, future which we hoped for with the rise of what you know called the new media the internet media that there would be sort of much more interplay and they'd feed off each other you've seen a lot more separate plants growing hmm. and uh, there's very little connection between them so that's why another reason why i think this whole ukraine thing won't matter to the base because trump's base they're not reading the new york times or the washington post james rogers and adam labor there we'll be back in just a moment with our panel but first here's monocle's ben rylan with some of the other stories we're following today Thanks, Tom. In the United States, Democrats have made big gains in state elections, including seizing full control of the legislature in Virginia for the first time in more than 20 years. The Democrats also won the governorship of Kentucky, despite strong personal support for the Republican incumbent there from President Donald Trump. The results are a blow to the president, as they're often used to gauge the political mood ahead of a US presidential election. Campaigning in the UK's general election is officially getting underway. The Conservative Party's campaign is promising to get Brexit done, while the leader of the Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, says that he wants to deliver real change for the whole country. British voters head to the polls on the 12th of December. And a controversial plan to build a cable car in the old city of Jerusalem has been approved by the Israeli government. The system, which the government claims will ease traffic congestion, will transport up to 3,000 visitors an hour from West Jerusalem to the Western Wall, which sits in occupied East Jerusalem. Opponents have vowed to challenge the plan in Israel's Supreme Court. That's what's making news. Back to you, Tom. Thanks, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards here with Adam Labor and James Rogers. Here in the UK, the Tories released a humorous doctored video of Labour's shadow Brexit secretary, Keir Starmer, apparently rendered incapable of answering a probing question about his own party's Brexit position. Various government mouthpieces, including party chair James Cleverley, were quick to defend the alleged joke. Um, 
Is this another new low in terms of deep fakery or misjudged fakery, in terms of the, the quality of the British discourse? Do we just need to get used to this kind of standard? Uh, I think, it, well, it's, in a sense, it's a sign of things to come. But I mean, I think having watched this, uh, having watched the original and the doctored one, it's pretty crude. But I mean, I think the way that it's been done, um, but I mean, I say that as a former TV producer, and I can see <laughs> it's been edited. But I mean, I think perhaps not necessarily to the normal viewer. And the fact that, you know, this wasn't put out as a joke video after all so much. It was only declared a joke after the fact. Um, and it's, it's like one of those things, sometimes when you publish something and then afterwards say, oh, and no, I didn't mean that, or here's a correction, it's not necessarily going to have the same impact as the original one. So I suspect that this was very, very carefully thought through right from the start. Uh, and it was an attempt to uh, uh, to embarrass and to humiliate the shadow, shadow Brexit secretary, make him uh, look like, uh, make, make something of Labour's contradictory policy on Brexit and try to put it out in very simple audiovisual terms. Um, but I think, you know, it's something that's not necessarily worked for them, but they've also, to an extent, got away with it. Well, that's interesting, Adam. And again, if we look back to the US, we can see certainly lots of claims that the right wing, the political right, has somewhat sort of colonised humour. They've they sort of seized irony as a, as a, as a, to weaponise it pol- politically, and that actually they they obfuscate genuine bigotry under this under this guise. Um, is that a US political export that's coming to the UK certainly for the next month? I think, as with so many things, what happens in America soon soon arrives here, especially in politics and. We we already saw in the U.S. there was this scandal about the slowed down video hmm. of Nancy Pelosi trying to show that she was kind of old and past it. So this, I, you know, there's an election coming. It's going to get dirty. If this is the dirtiest it gets, that there's a doctored video of Keir Starmer, I would I would be amazed because this is what we're seeing in front. Who knows what's happening behind the scenes? But uh, as James said, if this had been released as a clear parody video like those parody videos you see then okay maybe it says clearly parody but it 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 was sort of not and then they kind of tried to row it back and say that it was so that's the dangerous thing is that they're blurring the lines here but uh it's 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 obvious that there's going to be more of this because the technology is getting so much better as well i mean there was a really good piece in the financial times recently about how the algorithms for deep you know to make deep fake videos are just speeding up you can get apps that can start to do crude versions of this so you know serious political operatives will be looking at this and it's not a good development for our democracy Uh, absolutely not and and james was nodding in in agreement there what what does one do about it then how do you try your best to resist that decline or that shift in that direction of the discourse? I think it's going to take time and and I say that for the following reasons. If you think now the way that people look at still photographs, people look at them with a great deal of scepticism. This is I I think right throughout, you know, the history of journalism and the history of mass media whenever there's a new medium that comes online immediately it is used and abused as a medium for attempting to deceive people. Now of course that still goes on Uh, But I think as audiences become used to it, then they become more sophisticated and it's less effective. And I take the example of Stills photographs, which have obviously been stunted up for 100 years and more, um, and now people can easily do on their phones. So I think that is going to be part of it. I think we're going to get reach a time, and I think this is possibly where what are now called legacy media brands may find their strength. And in fact, I think they probably already do to an extent is that um, rather than trusting what they see, people will trust the source that provides it. In other words, if you see from a reputable 
broadcast of this video, you think, well, that probably hasn't been doctored. But if you just see something on social media, you will pause, and not everybody will do this, but I think that's probably where it goes. But there's no means of legislating against this because, you know, as I say, people can just do this on their phone. As Adam says, you know, maybe the apps aren't there to make deep fake video on your phone yet, but one imagines it's only a matter of time till they are. Um, do you go along with that, Adam, that there's, there's not really... A, a regulatory framework or there's not a way to legislate out of this particular problem? No, I don't think so because you're talking about millions of people mm. and ever-increasing technology. I don't think so. I think, yeah, as James says, it, it, that's an interesting point is that intelligent thinking people who actually want to know what's going on in the world rather than just have their prejudices confirmed might well start going back to the legacy media you know thinking the washington post or the new york times or the financial times or the times or the bbc if it's on there then it has the imprimatur of kind of being correct and genuine which i think is also one reason why you see you know the alternative media spending a lot of time attacking the legacy media which has been rebranded as the mainstream media msm you know people say oh msm don't care not interested so it can rebound so I think we're in a place where we're not quite sure how this is going to play out, really. Well, that's a, that's a, thought, that's a thought. It's wrong-footed me. I'm just thinking about it. Stay tuned to Model 24, always reliable. Um, let's talk a bit more then about news and I suppose the future of, of news making. But we're going to go to Utah next. Uh, the Salt Lake Tribune there, a recent Pulitzer Prize winner, no less, has become the first paper stateside to be granted non-profit status by the IRS. Um James, what, you mentioned legacy media a moment ago. What does this development tell us? Because it's quite interesting. Reading around, it doesn't seem like uh, Mr Huntsman is just doing this for financial expediency, although obviously that's a, uh, that's a kind of a, a win-win for him and his family. Um, but this is, a, this is a quite an important development, isn't it? It is an important development. I mean, I think in a sense it's confirmation of a pattern that we've seen certainly in this country and in the United States and across large parts of the world where local newspapers have been closing over the last decade and more uh, because the business model, which has served them extremely well since they became mass media in many cases in the 19th century, that is reliable revenue from both sales and advertising, has collapsed over the last few years. I think so... Uh, there's a recognition here that this kind of local journalism is a public good, which is something that should be provided and therefore, in effect, subsidised. I think there is one slightly worrying development in this, um, and, it, and it is the following that um, as part of the conditions of their not being um, profit-making anymore, they're not allowed to offer political endorsements. Mm. And I think that is something which... Um, I mean, of course, the media landscapes are different. In this country, we look to our broadcasters traditionally for impartial news, and we look to our newspapers for comment and analysis. And indeed, it's a tradition of British elections that newspapers will tend to endorse one or other party uh, at the time of an election, giving their reasons for doing so. If that's taken away, it would seem to me to be taking something away from very valuable local political debate, um, which I guess can still be addressed. Um, can't they kind of step around it, though, can't they? Say, we support the candidate that has the best policies on, you know, ABC. Presumably they can. I mean, but it's, it's up for test. It's, but it's yeah. interesting that it's sort of, in effect, it's being legally enshrined. That's right. Yeah. It's a regulatory framework they're now being placed in, yeah. um, which one would imagine is quite restrictive on a local yeah. newspaper, which all its time has said, we want so-and-so for mayor, yeah. we want so-and-so for governor, etc. Yes. Yeah, because the locality of it makes it that much more important. Yeah. People want to know what the local paper's thinking. Well, it's interesting, of course, and Huntsman himself, since he became steward of this title has backed or helped sanction uh, some pretty aggressive uh, campaigning work by the newspaper. I mentioned the Pulitzer Prize for investigations into the church in particular that is actually you know part of his sort of family background. He's been unafraid and he's not had 
he's not tied to the hand behind the back of whichever editor he's been working has been working under him. Um, what do you make, Adam, of that point that you know the the, the politicisation of it is stripped out by this? I mean, is that does that render the advantages of this moot? Do you think? No, I don't think so. I think the the key thing is that it should continue to exist. I mean, that's the first most important thing of a local paper is that a region's towns, cities, villages need local media to tell them what's going on. That's the most... Uh, and if this is the model... You know, we, we talk a lot about how things have to adapt. As James says, the old model doesn't work of subscriptions and advertising. If this is the model or a model, certainly let's explore it. That's... It's a price, it's not ideal, but it's more important that, the, that that media continues to exist and serve its local area. And it, of course, it can still campaign very hard on local issues, you know, like uh, corruption and pollution and, and bad administration. All those things can still be covered aggressively and in depth. Um, James, if we take a further step back then and look, we were talking earlier about you know the uh, midterm results and looking to the, the, the 2020 presidential race. Mm. Um, at the risk of asking you sort of gen- too general a question, how would you characterise the role that the media needs to be trying to play uh, in this campaign? You know, local issues we know get, can get good local coverage across the US, but wherever we look here in the UK, the, 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 the heart's been ripped out of local newspaper coverage, mm. and in our election, that's a problem. Um, do you look? Is it best to look for sort of singular models that do a good job and try and ape aspects of their approach? Is it about questioning? models of financing or ownership as in this case i mean i think it depends upon the medium really i mean the united states of course is is arguably you know if, if not quite the birthplace then the strongest home of the idea of journalism as the fourth estate as practiced by the new york times and the washington post and more and the subject of restrictions access to newspapers you may have seen uh, the story reported earlier this week that there's a county in florida which has refused to pay the digital subscription for the new york times uh, which is going to cost the county library two thousand seven hundred dollars on the grounds that those responsible for taking the decision agreed with uh, President Trump's view uh, of that newspaper, which is slightly worrying, I think. But I think you will see that. You'll see this sort of classic fourth estate holding power to account journalism. And then, you know, in the more raucous areas of the internet and on social media, you will see, you know, outright campaigning. And I think that that sort of mixture of media and that mixture uh, of what the messages they're sending out is probably very healthy. But as I say, you know, the Salt Lake Tribune story we've just been discussing shows that, you know, there are massive, massive challenges for for media or outlets which have lasted for a century more in many cases. Uh, Adam, maybe just a final thought from you. Is it best then for these heritage brands to just try and sidestep that social media maelstrom and stick to their stick to their guns, stick to their you know traditional means and their traditional messages, or is that a marketplace that they just simply can't afford not to be present in, or not to at least try to be more present in? I think it's both. I think they should be present in that marketplace, but make the most of their heritage. The mm. fact that they're known, they have a reputation that people uh, trust and believe them to be reliable. Adam Labore and James Rogers, thank you both very much. In a moment, the four-day week finally gets the recognition it deserves. You're with Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Tom Edwards. While work-shy beatniks like myself have long lusted after a four-day week, our cries have fallen tragically on deaf ears, but perhaps not for much longer. Monocle's business editor, Venetia Rainey, explains why they might represent the brave new future of office hours. The evidence is mounting that people do not need to be in the office nine hours a day, five days a week to get their job done. The latest experiment on the issue was in Japan, where Microsoft trialled a four-day work week throughout August. The result? 
productivity jumped by a massive 40% and employees took 25% less time off. There were other unexpected benefits for the company too. Electricity use dropped by a quarter and printing by nearly two-thirds. Although office workers themselves have long known that a fair portion of the day is spent doing things that aren't strictly job-related, Microsoft's findings add legitimacy to a movement that has been growing ever since last year's landmark trial by Perpetual Guardian. The Auckland-based financial firm found that staff were better at their jobs and enjoyed them more when they were working four days a week. Oh, and their salary wasn't even cut. The reason behind it all is simple. Employees had more time to manage their personal life, letting them focus on their work while in the office. But it's a controversial subject, and not everyone is sold. While Perpetual Guardian made the change permanent within a few months, Microsoft Japan hasn't committed to anything and is trialling another flexible working model this winter. A UK report earlier this year said it wouldn't work nationally, as different sectors have different needs. Clearly, there's no blanket solution, but the trend is obvious. The bums-on-seats ethos that has permeated work culture for so long is slowly coming to an end. That was Venetia Rainey, and that's all for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machilari and researched by Yolene Goffin, Sam Johannes and Nick Toomey. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and Louis Allen. Coming up at 20 hundred hours London time, a brand new edition of Monocle on Design. Be sure to stay tuned for that. Monocle's House View, though, is back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Listening.